Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this is the last author interview of the year. Not the last episode, there's more on that in the afterword, but this is the last time that I dive deep into a book with the person who wrote it. Fittingly, the book in question is a stone-cold masterpiece. Now, I don't use that word lightly, as you know, but Philip Fracassi has put together a novel that combines the languid, character-driven storytelling of the best 80s horror classics with a contemporary genre-blending style that keeps you shocked and, as you'll hear, shook. The book is called A Child Alone with Strangers. It's been out for a few weeks now and I, well, I just recommend you read it. And because of my enthusiasm and Philip's, this is a cracker of an episode, even if I do say so myself. Now, we talk about a lot of things. Writing believable children, creating great villains, and conceiving of original monsters and true otherness. We get into insectile horror, empathy overloads, the sheer market phenomenon that is Stephen King, and that's all in the next 70 minutes. Philip even brings up it without me having to. What a way to finish the year. Remember, Those who are so inclined can support Talking Scared and get loads of bonus content. It's very simple. You just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod or click the link in the show notes. A big thanks to Alan Bristow, Terence Watkins, Craig Williams, Sky and Pris, Tracy Hewing, Matthew Yates and Kelly Webster, all of whom have subscribed recently. Cheers, folks. It's really kind and it really matters. But now, come with me to a very particular cabin in the woods. There's one special child locked upstairs, and another in the cellar, growing hungry. Let's talk scared. Well, hi, Philip, and a big, big welcome to Talking Scared. How are you, man? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to finally have you, because... This conversation has been a long time in, in the making. I mean, since we first talked about getting you on, on this show, you've launched your own show, <laughs> The Dark Word, um, yeah. which I am enjoying very much, by the way. It's I, I, it's a nice sort of craft-based counterpart to the more wishy-washy chat that I do here on Talking Scared. So it's I think we corner the, the two halves of the horror writing process. Yeah, it's a pretty focused show thematically where it's just 30 minutes of like sort of shop talk you know about writing and publishing and agents and editors and movie options and all that kind of stuff so yeah it's a it's very focused uh thematically and uh yeah people seem to enjoy it so that's makes me feel good yeah i mean you get a great roster of guests i mean increasingly we're having kind of similar guests on there and um it has been useful to listen to sometimes i'm too scared in case i listen and you ask all the things i want to ask but that's that's not happened so far. I think we're managing to uh, run <laughs> run sort of parallel tracks pretty well. But yeah, I mean, I first reached out to you with an invite to come on and talk about your book, The Boys in the Valley, like over a year ago. And, and the schedules didn't quite work out right. And, and then obviously since then, you've exploded. And it seems like you've got just loads of books coming out all in quick succession. Yeah, so... Boys in the Valley was released in a limited edition of 500 copies uh, last October on Halloween 2021. And at that time, I don't think I had anything slated to come out. 
And then in February of 2022, Stephen King retweeted a tweet about Boys in the Valley, a review that Sadie Hartman, uh, aka Mother Horror, had written. And he retweeted her review and said, I'm going to buy it. And which was amazing, except for the fact that nobody could actually buy the book <laughs> because it sold out. <laughs> All 500 copies sold out the day of publication. So um, that was kind of a weird time because I had Stephen King tweeting about my book, but nobody could buy the book he was tweeting about. So, um, but what the positives that came out of that, though, uh, to your point, was that it allowed me to sort of fast track uh, selling Boys in the Valley to a wider audience. So we sold it to Tor Nightfire here in the US and uh, uh, ultimately Orbit UK picked it up for UK and UK Commonwealth countries. So that's coming out now July of 2023. And then subsequently sold Child of the Lone Strangers. Actually, I'm sorry, Child of the Lone Strangers I had sold previously. Uh, but that So that came out uh, just this past month, a couple of weeks ago. And then Gothic, we sold to Cemetery Dance, which is coming out in February. So yeah, so I have three novels coming out in the next nine months, give or take. And um, But it all kind of happened very quickly you know it was not uh not a traditional way of selling uh novels in a sense and then i'll have another novel coming out in june of 2024 which is um the second book in my deal with tor nightfire so so yeah right now i kind of have i have a lot of stuff slated which is a good feeling well yeah i mean it's amazing and and just to speak very briefly about that that day in february it was a really nice moment that because i i saw that tweet because obviously i follow stephen king what was really nice was how the horror community kind of came together to celebrate that. We were like seeing your ascension in real time. I thought it was nice. It was very little jealousy. Everyone seemed really on board and happy it was happening. Yeah. Generally speaking, the um, horror community is very supportive of each other. And, you know, based on conversations that I've had with other authors um, who write in different genres, it's it's not common, you know, um, mm. in, in other genre communities, there's a bit more of a cutthroat vibe between authors um, is what I've been told. And um, yeah, but the horror community is very much um, a supportive of each other. I think because we're sort of the, you know, the redheaded stepchild or whatever, I think, you know, of the genre tree, I think that we are, we're always genuinely happy for each other. And, and, you know, the logic being also from a business perspective, you know, rising tide lifts all boats, right? So we all want horror to do well. And the better horror does, the better, you know, potentially we all do. And yeah, that was a crazy day because, um, you know, when my wife and I were on vacation, we were skiing uh, in Northern California and my phone just blew up coming down the mountain. I had no idea what was going on. I was getting messages and all these, you know, hundreds of tweet notifications and emails. And, and I was like, what is going on? And then of course I saw that King had retweeted about the book and it was actually funny because. Um, the day before when I saw Sadie's initial review and it was getting a, a huge response as well. She really knocked it out of the park with her review. And I was upset because nobody could buy the book. Right. And Sadie had written this amazing review and people wanted the book and nobody could buy the book. And so I turned to my wife and I said, watch now Stephen King's going to tweet about it. <laughs> and then I'll really be in trouble. And I was joking, obviously. And the next day Stephen King tweeted about it. And um, so, yeah, it was a, it was a good thing. It was a bittersweet moment because I sure wish I uh, had books to sell. Um, at that point, hopefully down the road, he'll, he is reading the book, or I should say he has the book. Um, so we're hoping that he reads it and likes it. And uh, and who knows, maybe he'll be inclined to give it a blurb or, or another tweet. We'll see. 
Yeah, the power of that man. One day he will listen to my show, retweet this, and my life will change. Yeah, he's 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 made careers. He, the influence he has in the horror community is on and beyond is unreal. So he's definitely um, the stamp of approval, and mm. uh, and he gets he gets lesser artists uh, known more widely, which is which is great. Well, I can't claim to be Stephen King or a Sadie Hartman, um, but I have been extolling the virtues of your new book a child along with strangers anyone who follows me on twitter has just seen me kind of tweeting manically about it this week because i i don't think i've had a better time with a book all year even if it did reduce me to tears and fury at one point (laughs) let's start there because that's that's the focus today can you please introduce us in whatever way you see fit to a child along with strangers yeah so a Child Alone with Strangers is my first genre novel, the first genre novel I wrote. So I, I've been writing my whole life, and I, but I only started writing horror fiction in 2015. And I started by writing short stories and, and started doing well with the short stories and decided to write a novel. And so this was sort of my first crack at um, a genre novel. I'd written three novels previously that were not genre. And... Um, and I really wanted it to be uh, an homage to all the 80s and 90s horror books that I'd read growing up. And I really wanted it to be trope heavy in that I wanted it, I call it a kitchen sink novel because mm-hmm. I just wanted it to be all the fun stuff that I had read when I was a kid and that excited me when I was growing up and reading horror. All the, all the great things about horror, in my opinion, like you know, it's got the telepathic kid. It's got the creature in the woods. It's got the scary abandoned farmhouse. You know, it's got all the fun stuff. So yeah, so well, let me synopsize the book. So the book is about a, a boy named Henry. And and Henry had, goes through some rough life stuff early and um, some traumatic moments happen. And then Henry is kidnapped, taken to this remote farmhouse in the middle of the deep woods and held there by these kidnappers these criminals and uh, the criminals don't know is that Henry has telepathic abilities. And what they also don't know is that there's something in the woods that Henry is communicating with that also wants these kidnappers gone. The story kind of takes off from there as to how Henry and this presence that's in the woods uh, worked, work together to sort of, to, um, to get rid of these, uh, these awful kidnappers um and meanwhile there's like a police procedural sort of side of things where the fbi is gathering clues and tracking down what happened to henry and you know um so they're sort of closing in it's some kind of almost a crime slash horror hybrid novel in a way like you know it's a 600 page crime horror novel it's a lot of fun i think um i think it has a lot of e- emotional moments you know i really fell in love with some of these characters especially henry um and yeah and i just wanted it to be sort of a big roller coaster to you know i wanted to take people on a ride and um and so so far the reviews the reader response has been really positive so um so far so good when i really love a book and i really love this book the thing i most want to know is kind of where the germ of the idea was, right? And and as you've mentioned, this book is is far from just one idea. There's no simple elevator pitch that I can possibly think of. Um, but do you remember, or or can you talk a little bit about about where 
these disparate strands came from and how you decided to put them together? Yeah, you know, um, normally when I approach a novel, I have a core idea and that core idea sort of germinates in my brain and I start adding characters. I mean, the way I know when I have a good story idea is if I have a story idea, I let it sort of stew in my mind. And if characters start emerging from that stew and taking, you know, growing legs and arms and brains and walking around and doing stuff, um, I know the idea is a good one. And with Child Alone with Strangers, my core idea was telepathic kid gets kidnapped. And then I just sort of let that fester. And um, eventually uh, I realized that I wanted, I wanted to have another angle that would sort of double down on what was already happening. So the book in a lot of ways is an escalation where it sort of starts, you know, down at the, <laughs> you know, at level one. And by the time it gets to the end, like Spinal Tap says, you know, it's turned all the way to 11. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to keep escalating the story. You know, one of the things I really enjoy about writing is when a reader thinks I've I've maxed out on what, you know, on uh, on the story. Like, okay, this has got to be the maximum amount of insanity that can happen. And then I love <laughs> taking that like one step further. So that was really kind of how I thought about it. And so, you know, with the the creature in the woods, which is not a spoiler, it's in the first five pages of the book. You know, I, I knew that would, I, wa- I really wanted to both, I really wanted to double down on the, on uh, what was happening with Henry. And I also wanted to double down on um, some of the emotional heft uh, that the novel could, could, could provide. Cause I think by, by um, creating this sort of like uh, additional scenario, it also allowed me to really expand this world and expand on um, the psychology of what was going on with this little boy, the psychology of the criminals, and then the psychology even of the um, creature. You know, um, so so that was really how it all kind of came together in my head. You know, kind of doing it step by step, and then when I sat down to outline it, you know, it just kind of all flowed. It all flowed, and there's other surprises that occur in the book that I won't give away. But um, yeah, I just the idea was just to just to start with that core nut. Henry came to life in my mind, and he was such a joy to write, and I love that character so much. And and then really just kind of like just keep escalating and escalating the story until it's you know a screaming inferno of chaos um, and, and hopefully emotion, you know, um, hopefully, you know, you've said it in your tweets and stuff um, that it, it wrecked you and stuff like that was the idea was I really wanted readers to, you know, I really wanted them to feel the gut punch of what happens um, in this story, as well as be entertained by the more plot elements of it. So there's a lot of stuff that goes on in this book um, and, and, and hopefully all of it's entertaining. Well, it definitely is. And one of the things I really enjoyed is the time you take to tell the story, to escalate in in the way that you said. Because, yeah, this is a big book, right? It comes in, I think, at 576 Kindle pages for me. And and it's a testament to how good it is that even at the ragged end of my two years of nonstop reading, I still loved every page of it. But you could argue, I think, or like, you know, a pedantic editor 
could argue that a great deal of what you include isn't functionally essential to the plot. And I wonder, you know, what are your thoughts on that? What was your decision-making process behind what to include and what to expand and, and why? Yeah, no, it's a good point. And it's an interesting point because my first agent who read partial drafts of this novel wanted me to do exactly that. They, you know, they wanted me to write a 80,000 word novel that was kind of more digestible for sales. You know, I was told time and time again that I was doing myself a disservice by making it a big novel and by having all these other threads, you know, throughout the book and all these other, you know, and, and spending time with each of the characters that I do. Um, and I no longer have that agent, uh, suffice yeah. to say. Um, and one of the, and I, and I had offers from other publishers uh, who wanted me to cut it down to 125,000 words. It's 176,000 words, I think. Um, they wanted me to take out a third of the book, basically. And I said no. And, you know, where I ended up with Skyhorse was the editor at the time, a gentleman named Oren Edis. He, you know, he bought the book as is. And that was, you know, basically the the biggest reason I went with Skyhorse was that they were happy to publish the book as it as I'd written it. You know, obviously there was a million edits and things like that, but but as far as the scale of the book, both in story and length, they were okay with it. And that was something that meant a lot to me. It's, it's not very uncommon for a first-time uh, novelist to have that kind of leeway. You know, mm. if, if, you're, if you're a popular novelist and your books are selling well, then you can have the bigger book down the road because you know you've proved you have a track record. So for a first time novelist to have that, you know, uh, was a big deal, and I knew that. So I was really happy that they allowed that. I wouldn't have published the book otherwise. And I think from my perspective, to answer your question directly, it was important for me that each character have uh, their their time to develop, and I wanted the criminals to be three dimensional. I wanted Henry to be three dimensional. I wanted Henry's guardians to be three-dimensional. And I think in a way, what is sometimes a negative or a perceived negative with a book by have, is like having a lot of characters. I think for me, speaking personally, but one of the more exciting things that I discovered writing that book was, I think I'm like 150 pages in before I introduce uh, the FBI agent, Sally. And when I was rereading that book, uh, have, after having had not read it, for I think a couple of years and rereading it for edits and stuff like that. I was really pleasantly surprised at how much juice having this new quirky eccentric FBI agent interjected into the book brought to the story. Just when maybe you were like, okay, I think I've got everything. I get the characters that are, I get what's going on. Then it's like, well, here's like a whole nother character that's going to introduce a whole kind of other element that I'm going to chase. I think it was, I think it brought the book some juice and it kind of like, re-energize re the storyline. So I, you know, it's not something I will do uh, often. I, I've written, I think four or five books since Child Alone with Strangers, um, three of which I've sold and uh, that are coming out. So, and they're all more standard length for different reasons. Uh, I do what I feel the story needs to, you know, I, I am a slave to the story. <laughs> and if the story needs 175,000 words to be properly told, 
then I'm going to give it 175,000 words. If it needs 75,000 words to be properly told, then that's what it's going to get. So I, it's not that I'm like, you know, want a bunch of superfluous information in the book. I just felt that the way to tell this story was that I needed to spend time developing all the different characters and all the different personalities so that readers were really invested in this world and really invested in these characters. And the key to that is to not make it boring. You know, uh, when you take a book like The Stand, which is a you know extreme example, you know, King does a really good job of keeping even the, as he's bouncing between all these different characters and different perspectives, it's still entertaining. You know, you don't feel like you're taking a step backwards. You feel like you still feel like you're progressing in the story. And I think that's the key. I think sometimes when you read books or see movies, like I'm not a big fan of um, alternating perspectives that take you back in time because I feel like you're making me step backward as a reader or as a viewer. So I think as long as you're, the story is continuing to progress and you don't make, you're not making the reader feel like they're stepping backward. Um, I think it works, you know? So that's, so yes, that I just, for, I mean, I, I don't really have a definite answer for why I felt the story needed all the other um, enhancements, we'll call it, to make it work. But in my mind, that was the only way that book could be written. It was the only way this story could be told. And if I had to cut any of that stuff, um, I, I probably wouldn't have published the book. I would have just kept it, you know, and put it in the drawer. Yeah, it's proof to me that a lot of the most effective art books, these ideas of structure and, you know, almost creation by committee, like from my current favorite filmmaker, for example, is Michael McDonough, who made In Bruges. He made Three Billboards. He's made the new The Banshees of Inner Sharing, and I love him because you never know what to expect. Because he throws structure out the window, he throws tone, tonal kind of consistency out the window, and it leaves you genuinely worried about what's going to happen next. And I like that, particularly when it gets to the darker end of the the genre spectrum. It's also interesting that you mention The Stand. I don't, I don't want to get back into King again, but all the way through this book, reading about these 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 kidnappers, there's five kidnappers who who take Henry. Um, I kept thinking about Lloyd Henry from The Stand. And for those listeners who haven't read that book, Lloyd is this criminal who we meet behind bars when the plague breaks out. And I actually think he'd fit in very well with Jim Cady's crew in your book. Mm. Um it's actually quite rare that you get such insight, I think, into a criminal character who is a villain rather than an anti-hero. You know, you get a lot of tortured sort of criminals who are actually on the side of the angels. But but your your kind of collection, with one possible exception, are, are bad people. And it's rare to spend that much time on the villains. Insofar, in your cases, they almost become the main characters of your book um i've sort of run out of role though i don't have a coherent question but can it can you talk a little bit about about creating those characters and and, and their centrality to your story yeah it's you know i'm gonna butcher it but you know i'm a screenwriter as, as well and so i read a lot of books about storytelling and about character development and and you know those kind of things and and about structure story structure is something that i'm very keen on but I, and I can't remember. I I'm I can't attribute this this idea. But I read something once where they were saying that basically the antagonist is a mere reflection of the of the protagonist, and they both have the same motivations. You know what I mean? But they're just they're just mirrored opposites. So 
Henry's motivation is to escape. Jim Cady's motivation is also to escape. Uh, Jim Cady being the, the master criminal um, in the story, for those who haven't read the book. And um, But the difference is Henry wants to escape with his life and Jim wants to escape with the money. I wanted Jim and, and, and the members of his crew to a slightly lesser extent to have his day <laughs> on the page. And, and I love, um, I love flawed people. I love flawed characters and he's more than a flawed character. He's to your point, he's evil, right? He's a straight up villain, but you can almost also kind of see an empathy to who he is. There's a passage in the book where he talks about how disappointed he is in people. Yeah. Which is a very, very human thought, a very normal thought. And and those kind of things, when you give someone like Jim, Katie, a very human thought or a very human emotion of like disappointment, um, a true disappointment, like disappointment in someone, in someone letting them down, I think that creates a more believable character. And um, and I wanted Jim to be terrifying. I wanted Jim to be, you know, not uh, un, you know, the monster under your bed terrifying, but truly, genuinely scary in like a real sense. And um, and the only way I could think of to do that was to was to make him flesh and blood. And the only way to make him flesh and blood on the page is to give him very human emotions, give him a, a you know a backstory. And his backstory is really more of a backstory of philosophy. It's not really, I don't get into his childhood or anything, but talk about how he sort of got philosophically to where he is now. And similar with um, you know, like Liam uh and the and and the other criminals, you know, they all have their own sort of other side of themselves, you know, their inner workings. Can I just jump in a second, Phil? Because on that note, I have a, a, a question. Because despite their actions and their kind of respective awfulnesses, there are times when sort of the sheer force of perspective makes you forget that these people are the bad guys, you know. Um, and you give them all the, a background, like their own traumas and their own, you know, for want of a better word, perversions maybe. Except for Jim Cady. Yeah, you give him a philosophical backstory, but you, we don't find out what actually made him this way in the way that we do with the others. And was it important for that monstrosity that he remains more of an enigma, like less vulnerable, perhaps? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think sometimes people are just bad, right? And there is no moment you know, to point to it's the, you know, environment, uh, versus, you know, thing with the character. And I think what, what I liked about Jim is that, no, he didn't have like a traumatic moment that made him into a bad person. He's always been a bad person, but from his perspective, he's not a bad person from his perspective. He's almost an entrepreneur in a way, you know, he's a master. He's the, he's the ultimate criminal mastermind and he just wants to succeed. And he's very driven and I think it's almost respectable in a way how driven he, he is and how organized he is, right? There's that scene when he's going through all of his, his like notebook of ideas, uh, which for most people is like, you know, bits of poetry and, <laughs> and the occasional story <laughs> idea. For Jim, it's different ways to make money, all of which are criminal, you know, in nature. Um, 
so yeah, I think I just wanted Jim to be, I think Enigma is a good way to think about it. I think I wanted him to be part of what makes him scary is that his motivations are so unpenetrable. You know, with Liam, Liam's a very, has very penetrable motivation as we find out even, and the other criminals have different, uh, Achilles heels as we find out. Um, but Jim really doesn't, you know, you could also point and I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it. So I'm not going to say, I'm not going to get into detail, but I, not only does Jim not have that moment of personal trauma in his past, but when I reveal aspects of each character, when I, you know, when, when, the, when there is a section of the book where each of their greatest fears is sort of mm-hmm. rehashed, Jim's not included yeah. in that. Cause I don't think Jim has any fears. Um, and that's what makes him such a bad, bad man. So, yeah. So I think that's a good, I think it's a good, a good point and not something I'd really given a lot of thought to other, until now, frankly, but yeah, I really wanted Jim to be Henry's antithesis. Um, you know, the, that mere reflection of Henry, um, where Henry six, three, <laughs> 250 pounds and a, and a, and a, you know, and a stone cold murderer and not a little, a little boy with a pot belly. So that's the good question. Yeah. So, but I do like spending time on the villains. I think this story called for that. You know, my books are all kind of different in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I've written, you know, Gothic is re- a really different book than the child alone with strangers. Boys in the Valley is a very different book than either of those two. Um, I wrote a book called Observe, which we're trying to sell currently, which is a science fiction novel. So that is a that is a totally different vibe. So I, I I'm a, like I said I'm a, I'm a servant to the story, and I follow you know when it, whether it's tone or whether it's the way I write the prose or whether it's structure or whether it's characterization. You know, every story is unique in my mind and every story has its own needs to succeed in my mind. And, um, and this story just needed, you know, it just needed what it needed. It needed these villains to be living, breathing people. And yeah, and and I think it makes the story ultimately work, especially with some of the supernatural stuff that goes on. It really keeps the story grounded, I think. Um, At least I hope. Well, it reminded me massively of From Dust Till Dawn although tonally it's very different. Because what a lot of people forget in that movie is the character that Quentin Tarantino plays is a sexual predator. You know, it, it starts with him doing a horrendous thing to a woman, it's implied. Uh, and then by the end of the movie, when it all goes, you know, when the shit hits the fan in, in that bar, y- you really care about Tarantino's character. And somehow along the way, we've forgotten what an absolute monster he is. And... Rodriguez's film is a lot more flippant than and comedic than, than your book, but it's that similar sort of thing. I say, like the you know the sheer force of perspective of, of making you empathise with these bad bad people. Um, but talking about antithesis, let, let's talk about Henry because there seems to be a particular knack to writing child protagonists. You know, King definitely has it, and, and you do too. And I wonder, how do you go about writing convincingly from from that perspective? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a good answer to that question. I've been asked that question before because a lot of my stories have child protagonists, like um, my short story, Alter. Uh, I wrote a novella called Commodore. Um, I wrote a short story called Failsafe that got a lot of traction. And they all have 
you know, they're all basically told from the perspective of children. I think what it comes down to is twofold. I think one is I have a great respect for the mind of a child, for the emotions of a child. Uh, I don't take it lightly. And I think it's a fine line between giving them um, agency with their thoughts and emotions and actions, true agency, and not crossing that line into unbelievability. And it's what's interesting about writing kids is sometimes you'll write, I'll get reviewers saying like, well, I found this, the way this kid thinking very unrealistic. I have a nine-year-old and he doesn't think that way. And I'm like, well, your nine-year-old isn't Henry. And there are kids who are brilliant and Henry is genuinely brilliant. Um, But I didn't oversell that aspect of him, but he's also very emotionally complex and he's also got an amazingly good heart. And I think it's the amazingly good heart part that makes Henry live and breathe. I think I'm able to really get across how much Henry cares about people, how good hearted he is. And then when he has those sort of moments that happen in the story where he's a a bit more, you know, you kind of see his hardened side. There's a steel, isn't there, that comes out. Yeah, there's a steel that comes out, right. And I think it's even more surprising for the reader when that happens because you buy it because you've you've now experienced this kid for so for so long and you've kind of kind of kind of gotten to know him but it gives him a very fleshed out feel and kids man you know kids are resilient and uh and they're tough you know and you know I've raised a kid so I'm I can speak to this but um you know there's something about having an 8 year old stand up to a grown man um that is you know it seems unrealistic in a way, but it's real. And if you present it the right way, it's real. And then the other side of it is, I think with writing kids is I can wire, my brain is wired in such a way that I can sort of put myself into their headspace. And I, I think that's something that's, I was born with versus learned. Um, I, I'm just happen to have a very juvenile person, <laughs> personality. Um, you know, the guy was walking around the house telling dad, bad dad jokes and I play video games with my kid. And, you know, I'm, 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 you know, I, I have a, you know, you know, my body is aging, but I do feel like my, my mind is, you know, young. And, and so I think there's just that kind of element where I, you know, I, I couldn't, it's a philosophical thing, maybe, I don't know, but like, I could never hold like a corporate job. I think I would go crazy. I, I, I want to play. It's just kind of an innate skill, I guess. But, um, but you have to be careful with it. Um, I don't want something I ever want to overdo. Uh, as far as like, you know, my future books and stories. But for example, Boys in the Valley. Have you read that one? I haven't. I'm embarrassed okay. to say. Because it basically, if, I, if I'm if i not interviewing about it, I don't have time to read it. No, I'm I understand. Hope, I'm hoping you'll come back on next year and perhaps talk about it then. Though I do believe it's a possession story, right? And they freak me out. Yeah, well, speaking of kids, yeah. So Boys in the Valley is literally about these orphans. Um there's, there's a, you know, it's, it's about this orphanage in uh, turn of the century, Pennsylvania, and it's kind of in this rural area sort of way standoff from any nearby town or city. And it's this uh, small orphanage where these 30 boys are raised and there's like four priests who watch over them. And, and the whole story is about these boys and what happens to them. And um, most of the story, I would say 80% of the book is told 
from the perspective of not one of the children, but multiple children. And yeah, there's a there's a possession element to it. Um, it's sort of a Lord of the Flies meets The Exorcist is sort of the <laughs> elevator pitch of that one. Um, you know, the age ranges in that book are are from nine to sixteen. Uh, and then there's also these adults, and the adults have the very unique personalities, and they're all disparate ages. Ages. So that one was a real um, trial in the sense that I had to kind of really, uh, I had to really get into the mind of kids, and it's and you know how different does a nine year old think than a fifteen year old? How different does a twelve year old think? So there's some a lot of nuance in that book, um, when it comes to, you know, all these different, these different, um, perspectives and these different kids. So that's one where I really went, you know, (laughs) really leaned into it. I think the other two books I've written since then are, are all, you know, adult perspectives. So like I said, it's not something I want to overdo, but, um, but the other thing about writing kids that, um, makes a story work and it's sort of a cheat in a way is that when you tell the perspective of a, of a story from a child's um, using a child, there's like this wholesale innocence and there's this wholesale buy-in, if yeah. you will, to what's happening because the kid, if you're a nine-year-old, eight-year-old kid and you see a ghost come out of your closet, you're not thinking, oh, is that a sheet on a hanger that the wind is blowing? You're thinking that's a ghost, man. And I think that as a reader, you're like, holy shit, he's right. That's a ghost. And because the kid thinks it's a ghost. And and when things happen to these, you know, to kids, they have this um, wide-eyed innocence to them, and it's it's just so much more traumatic in a way uh, because they're because they don't have the life experience to categorize it or to or to deal with the pain or the insanity of it. But on top of that, they're also more resilient than an adult is. So. There's a lot of cool things about working with children as characters that adults don't allow you to do because adults all have all that baggage, they have all that armor, they have all that knowledge. They're, you know, they're, you know, we're all, cr- you know, crass and beaten and <laughs> broken. And, and so when something supernatural happens to an adult, it has a totally different vibe than when something supernatural happens to a child. And so I think for that reason, Things books like it, um, and a boy's life and things like that, I think work better than they would if they were like adults. So I think that's kind of a it's it's a bit of a cheat code, but it's not a cheat code you want to over. It's not a card you want to overly play. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it first because I mention it every week and it gets a bit bit painful. I love it. That book, it, you know, the, 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 the brilliant way that King sets this thing about how children live at a kind of different level than the adults you know right in horror fiction generally children they bend whereas adults kind of break and they fracture and you know they can't handle the eruption into reality of something odd whereas children can just mold around it and that's that's what henry does um and i suppose that's a good segue into talking about the weirder aspects of of your novel now from here on i'm going to ask some questions about the monster in the woods I'm not going to ask anything spoilery, but if people don't want to know what's out there, here is your your warning. Um, but but let's jump in. So, the thing in the woods, mother, as as she's called uh, or it's called, um, weird place to start. But I know you're good friends with Laird Baron. 
Now, I'm yet to speak to Laird, uh, but I've read a lot of his stuff, and I can see some parallels between your book and his brand of weird backwards myth. And, and the figure of Mother in particular feels like something you two could have cooked up together around a moonshine still. Uh, <laughs> can, can you talk a little bit about where she did come from? Or, you know, how do you conceive of that creature now in hindsight? Yeah, and, and, and I take it as a huge compliment that you think of Laird Barron when, about that character. Because Laird's, in my opinion, the most amazing horror writer of our generation and um and yeah he's a he's a buddy but um well you got you dangle but, but you get what i mean though that, that that sense of like things in the woods that kind of beyond the ken of men um and that that rural horror it's very much kind of his his raison d'etre isn't it can you see what i'm getting out there yeah i think i think the proboscis is sort of the tie-in <laughs> between, <laughs> between mother and laird and if you don't know what that is go ahead and google it um so mother the thing with that creature is again i wanted her to be something undefined and what i mean by undefined is something that we haven't seen before something the reader hasn't seen before and the way i built her was by fusing science slash biology and myth so in some ways she has very human um she has very human traits mostly internally you know the way she thinks the way she operates her motivations uh you know the fact that she can love the fact that she can be emotionally hurt physically i wanted her to be an amalgam of unknown and insectile. Mm -hmm. So there are definitely strong insect vibes as far as her physicality, but she also has these like supernatural powers. So they're subtle, but they're, but they exist much like Henry. And I go into a little bit in the book, which I'm not going to say here where she or originated mm -hmm. from. And in the opening epigraph of the book, there's a quote uh, where I talk about um, that there are things that have been here longer than than man. You know, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Superman 3 with Richard Pryor. That was the mm -hmm. one with Richard Pryor. But the whole – it's a, I don't, <laughs> but there's a weird element of that movie where they talk about tar. Tar is something that's found in cigarettes, but nobody knows what it is. It's like this mystery element. And – and that somehow becomes a plot point with the movie. I, I'd have to rewatch it to know how, but but it always stuck with me that weird thing of like, what do you mean? Someone's got to know what it is. It's tar, and it's like sort of this mystery element that makes cigarettes what they are. It's like eighteen percent tar or whatever. And um, and in a ways, that's kind of like the mother is sort of like eighteen percent tar. You know, she's eighteen percent unknown, and um, that gives her you know sort of that originality. But yeah, I just knew I didn't want it to be something that we'd seen before. I didn't want it to be a witch. I didn't want it to be um, something that was pure monster. Um, I wanted it to be something that was sort of a hybrid of of all these things. And um, 
and then uh, and then I wanted to give her a bit of a history as well. Uh, so yeah, and and that's 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 and she has a backstory that I don't really get into in the book, which is that answers the questions of why she's there, and why she wants to get into that house where the kidnappers are holding Henry. Um, so, but I I don't get too into that in the book, but I allude to it. But there's definitely a backstory. Of of you know she has a back her, her character has a definite backstory of why she's why she is where she is. Well, I mean you, you do that beautifully. It's a, it's something that I love. It sets my imagination on fire. And when we were offline, I, I was saying to you how much I also loved Andy Davidson's The Hollow Kind. Um, and there are similarities right. between the two books because they both do what you're talking about, which is leave a trail of breadcrumbs for the reader to patch together. The, the kind of own approximation of, of of what this creature is and where it comes from. Um, but also that lovely idea that throughout human history, all the myths that we've come up with, all the lore and legend, maybe she is part of the the thing that originated that myth. There's a great part where, I can't remember which character, it might be Liam, but he thinks about there's a scene where he sees Mother doing something and he thinks about Medusa or the picture of of um is it theseus or perseus holding up medusa's head perseus yeah um you know he has a fleeting thought about where such imagery came from and it's implication that these creatures are the background to all this in the human psyche and i love that and one thing that kept occurring to me is because mother has a baby shall we call him it baby um they, they they're kind of a pair were they in any way inspired by the myth of Grendel and his mother? That may be completely off base, but it kept occurring to me. No, not consciously. I mean, it's it's um, but it is interesting that you say that because it kind of ties into what you said just before that, which is myths. You know, realities or myths had to start somewhere, and mm. and it's a, it's a topic that's been explored in other places. But I did find that interesting, where it's like you know, in a way, mother. Uh, could be the the nexus of some of sort of these mythologies that have developed over humankind. But yeah, no, I didn't. I, I didn't. I wasn't thinking about Grendel when I when I came up with with Baby. You know, but Baby's an interesting cat, right? Because <laughs> uh, he sort of has his own motivations. And I think one of the things I play with a lot in the book is, um, and I don't want to blow your mind or anything, Neil. But in the title, A Child Alone with Strangers, who really is the child that I'm referring this, this to? This had title? occurred to me. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's ultimately, you know, much like Jim, Katie, and Henry are sort of reflections of each other in many, many ways. Uh, baby and Henry are reflections of each other, which gets messy <laughs> as the story, you know, comes to its finale. Um, but yeah, so... I have a great fondness for baby. And also it's worth noting that baby has a different um, physicality mm. than mother. Yeah. And we don't know who, we, we don't know who his father is either. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, he's, he's a different, he's a different uh, species and not different species, but a different um, uh, uh, line, if you will, of, of, of that species that, that, that mother is. So um, yeah, he has different physical characteristics. And, uh, and I did that very purposely because I wanted there to, you know the reality is, um, if you like, if you walk into the woods and you turn over a giant rock, 
and you see a bunch of little bugs squiggling, worming around in the dark. Uh, that's sort of how I see the hive from which Mother originally mm-hmm. came. There's a lot of different things going on down there. So, um, I, yeah, I don't know what else to say about Baby without spoiling the book, but there's definitely a bond there. Um, well, this is where I'm going to take you to task, Philip, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Now, normally, I would try and construct a sentence and a question that would, you know, help you not give a spoiler, etc. But basically, you deserve this. So I'll, I'll let you navigate it because you broke my heart, right? There is a moment late in this novel featuring mother and baby that shattered me. And, and I mean that really like right now I'm thinking about a certain sentence, which I, I won't spoil. And it's an, the empathy I feel is almost physically nauseating. It, it, it genuinely shook me. Um, now, in horror circles, that's a compliment, I know. <laughs> right. And, and it, it prompted a, a, a tweet that I put out this week that I, I just tweeted that, for me, the saddest story of all is the loneliness of monsters. And basically, Philip, why the hell did you have to do that to me? <laughs> oh, man. I'm sorry. You know, I got a, I got a similar note. Oh, shit, I can't even say that. Uh, for another one of my stories, I'll just say that, and um, and I was just like, I'm really sorry. I don't know what to tell you. Um, yeah, it's a and it was a, and it was fully intended to be a crushing moment. So I can't oh. tell you how happy it makes me that it broke broke your heart because um, that was 100 percent my intention. Um, and it's interesting though when you step back and think about it, because okay. Like I'm not going to get super spoilery, but if but I, I but we're going to address it. I got to address it a little bit, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it wasn't Henry, who you've been living with, and who you've seen all the good and the bad, and everything else. That something that in the moment you're describing, it wasn't Henry, right? It mm-hmm. was someone. It was this character who you didn't even really know, and wasn't really. <laughs> You know, not the most cuddly character, right? But you still were crushed. And I think it says a lot about um, developing mother in ways that, again, with like it's kind of going back to Jim Katie discussion to give her real range, emotional range, and in, in a very short period of time. You know, I, I think um, my the the parts of the book where I'm offering mother's perspective are very I think probably total in the whole book it can't be more than ten pages mm-hmm. it's very few and far between um, but you still feel empathy for this creature and yeah that was an important part of the book unfortunately that had to happen um, and it also obviously it makes what happens after that even more profound I guess I'll say um, yeah and. And I, I won't go any further with spoilers, except to say, and I think this may actually offend you as the, as the crafter of this story, but I was thinking, is it wrong of me that I cared more about baby and mother than I did about Henry's safety? I'll actually go one further, and then I'll explain why I think I'm like this, why I'm this broken soul. I would actually, at any point, have swapped Henry's life to stop what happened. <laughs> Oh my god! Yeah, I know, I know, but I think it's because I um I have this weird thing with animals that ever since I got a dog, I've, I mean, I've always really struggled with cruelty to animals. Like 
even in fiction. Oh, we won't then we won't talk about the dog scene. Then. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's not. Um, but I ever since I got a dog, and because I don't have children, and I've done that thing that people like me do, which is buy a small dog and massively infantilize it. And ever since then, anything happening to non-human creatures devastates me in a way that you simply cannot do to me with the most extreme cruelty to human beings at all. Like I'm, I'm impervious to the, the torment of fictional humans, but any animal, and I'm in bits. So you can, you can now get why your book broke me. It's interesting. I want to, I want to analyze this a little bit because I find it fascinating. But, but the scene with the actual animals didn't bother you as much, it sounds like. No, not as Which much. Which is interesting. No, no, not as much. I think because I think if you'd picked because... one dog. <laughs> right. And I described its like patch of uh, yeah. w- white fur around its right eye and the slight limp it had and then had a hit by a car. Yeah. yeah. By making them a kind of relentless force, I was, I was right. kind of- Right, exactly. Yeah, I dehumanized them. And I think, um, I think, yeah, and I don't think what you're saying is strange at all. As a matter of fact, there's an argument to be made that it isn't even Henry's story. There's, there's a, so that, so, so your response is not to me, it's not certainly not defensive. Um, if anything, it's almost, you know, I'm over kind of smiling because in some ways that one can make the argument that the way you read the book is the way the book is supposed to be read. Mm. Um, that makes you a you cruel felt- bastard, Philip. That makes you, <laughs> that makes you unforgivable. <laughs> But I, I, I did a similar thing with there's no monsters in Boys in the Valley, but similarly with Boys in the Valley, um, I think that who a reader thinks is the main character of the story, I think ultimately could be argued is not. And I love that. I love, um, I don't know, I love emotionally surprising people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it makes for a more engaging read and a more... Um, I think for the kind of story that will stick with someone longer. And I think it's just also, um, it gives depth to a story when you can, if you can make a reader feel just as attached to character B and character C as they are to character A, um, then I think that I take that as a win from a writer's perspective. Yeah, very much. And I, I definitely will check out Boys in the Valley and we can hopefully talk about it next year and i'll i'll take the task then as well yeah hopefully um i would say probably very early next year if not sooner i think uh nightfire and or orbit will start you know getting that book out into Mm -hmm. reviewers hands and stuff like that so it doesn't come out till july july 11th but so there's time You've time for a break. I know you need a break. <laughs> yeah, I have good contacts with Nightfire. I'll, I'll write to them and, and, and get the hands on that. Um, but whilst we're on the topic of, of other books, I always close by asking my guests to recommend a book that my listeners should read um, and tell us why. Yeah, so, um, you know, two books that I, I try and recommend books that I think are not necessarily books that people have read. One book I really enjoyed reading early in my uh, life um, that, that definitely impacted me was a book called The Magus by John Fowles. John Fowles. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's a staggering work of imagination and character um, that I highly recommend. I also would recommend 
a book, a novel called Let It Come Down by Paul Bowles, um, which is sort of a non-traditional horror novel. Uh, Paul Bowles is one dark dude. And, um, and that book had a huge impact on me because I think for similar reasons, those are both books that I've read where I was like, um, where you were reading literature, quote unquote, but really you were reading a horror story. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that the, I think they're interesting books for people to, to check out. I think they'll give you an interesting perspective on what can be done in the horror space um, as it pertains to uh, storytelling. So I've never read Paul Bowles, but I'm kind of peripherally aware. He always wrote about kind of North Africa, didn't he? And Morocco and that. Yeah. Sheltering Sky is sort of, Sheltering Sky is sort of what he's best known for his short stories. He wrote a short story called The Delicate Prey, uh, which is in a collection of stories with the same title. That is one of the most messed up, if not the most messed up short story I've ever read. Yeah. And I've read hundreds and hundreds of, horror story so uh yeah he's a yeah he's a messed up cat um he also did some translating that um of, of of books that were amazing and dark but yeah um yeah i would check out i would check out delicate prey i would check out um let it come down and i would definitely check out the magus by john files there's two editions of the magus um when it was originally published i think it was 1970 um and then, and it was it was uh, censored, truncated. And then in 1977, uh, Fowles uh, put out a revised edition that was his original novel with all the all the uh, bells and whistles. So uh, if you do pick it up, uh, make just make sure you're getting the 1977 edition, which all the current paperbacks are that edition. So, but if you're like a book collector like me, and you mm-hmm. go back and buy the original printing. It's not you. Know, you're better off getting the '77 uh, reprint. Good to know. I, I've never read it either, um, which is embarrassing because I wrote a PhD on metafiction, and I absolutely love Greece, and I know that it's a metafictional yeah. novel set in Greece. So I have absolutely no excuse for not having read it. But I will. I'll take your advice and and check it out whenever I. Falls is a great writer, I and mean, he's done some dark stuff. You know, he did the Collector, which is a very mm, dark. That's the novel. one I've read. Yeah, yeah, it's the one most people have read. This is sort of his big novel. I mean, no, I shouldn't say that he's written a bunch of big novels, but this is probably the dar- his darkest novel of all of all of his like French Lieutenant Woman stuff like that. He's mm-hmm. this is more of a this reads more like a horror novel in my mind, mm. in my opinion. Okay, two books I've not read, and uh, they will go straight on the reading list in the show notes. My last question, Philip, that I ask everyone, and God knows what you're going to say to this, having read this book, but what truly scares you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, it's such a lame answer because it's not the answer you're like, I don't think <laughs> it's what you mean, but, uh, you know, more than anything, I'm, you know, I would say failure. And that's just an honest answer. Uh, I'm a very driven guy and I just, I, I, uh, that's, and my version of succeeding would, you know, is not, you know, fame and money and a Mercedes Benz, which would be nice, but, um, it's, it's my own personal succeeding. Um, and I think writing is such a major part of my life and it's such a major part of who I am that, uh, it's, I'm almost feverish about. It. I've actually was I, ha, I was at a I was at a world fantasy convention and I was talking to Jeffrey Ford, who's such a sweet guy, great author, amazing guy. 
And he was like, look, man, you're doing wonderful things. You're putting out a lot of work. You're promoting all your stuff. You're, you know, you're generating a lot of content. Let me give you some advice. And I was like, sure, absolutely. And he's like, slow down, relax, <laughs> you know? And he's, and, and it was kind of this like father, you know, moment of like, dude, you know, and, you know, smell the, smell the roses a little bit. And, um, so for me, I'm, I'm very afraid of failure. I'm very afraid of not succeeding, of not, uh, uh, of not writing something that I believe in or, or that I think is, um, worth writing. And, and so, yeah, so that's kind of, that's sort of my big fear and that it, it drives me to constantly be pushing myself harder and hopefully creating, you know, better and better content. That's, that's the goal for, for, is, for readers everywhere. That is the opposite of a lame answer. Can I ask you a personal question? How old were you when you finished your first novel? Uh, when I finished my first novel. So my first novel was called the ego test. Um, I finished that book when I was published in 1999. So I was 28 when I I finished it. And then I wrote a couple novels in my 30s, um, one of which actually is coming out uh, next month. Uh, It's called Don't Let Them Get You Down. And it's being published by um, Zagava Press. They did a limited edition of the book that sold out. And so now they're doing a trade paperback mm. edition that's coming out in December. So that's a not a genre book. That's a book about depression. Um, it's a novel about uh, depression primarily. And um, yeah, and so, and then the Egotist and another book I wrote called Happy Holly um, probably will never again see the light of day. But um, but yeah, so I, start, I think I finished my first novel when I was yeah I think I was right around twenty seven twenty eight. I published it in. I published it when I was 29, so I'm kind of okay. guesstimating. Yeah. No, I, um, I asked that I asked that question because I I kind of completely get that that fear of failure. And like and I look at my life now and I think, you know, I've been pretty successful in in doing what I'm trying to do. Like I I spent my thirties in higher education and like I now write for decent publications and I've got this podcast and I know people and I'm you know, I've, I've managed to create a freelance writing career and stuff, but I, I don't think that I will ever feel like I've fulfilled what success means for me until I've written a novel. Not published it, but written one. And I'm 40 next year. And I'm like, right, I've got to shit or get off the pot, you know? So oh, you're a pup. Um, this this podcast has been a, been a kind of, it's had a, had a parallel saga of me talking through trying to write this, bloody novel um and yeah i i feel like that i, I, say, I wrote child alone with strangers when i was 45 so you know and i pub- i'm publishing it you know at the age of 51 so okay um right. you know there's time and there's i mean um there's a wonderful writer named um uh william gay uh, who, oh God! Yeah, who published yeah. his first novel when he was fifty-five? I want to say, and I know there's authors who are publishing their first novels at 60, 65, 70. It doesn't really matter. It's just John Irving is still writing, you know, giant mm-hmm. block, mo- you know, novels at seventy plus. Stephen King is still churning out work at seventy plus, seventy-five or whatever. He is. So I think there's there's always time and I and I hear you and it, it when you said you hit the nail on the head your version of success and for me um you know my version of success if I'm being completely transparent is um I just want to be able to do what I do 
and not have to do anything to take away from what I do. Meaning, you know, mm-hmm. if I can do this for a living and I can scratch out a living doing it, then I am, and I can all, you know, then if it means I can keep writing, I don't just stop writing to go do something else. Um, then I'm, then I'm satisfied. That's for me, that's the like level where I'm hoping to be able to maintain. And I may not be able to maintain that. You know, I, I've only been writing full time for about a year, a little over a year. Um, I may have to go, um, back to my day job. And if that happens, it happens, you know, um, but I'm going to try my best to kind of at least keep, you know, the, the momentum going, um, now that I've kind of got the tiger by the tail a little bit. Um, and the only way to do that is to keep working, work, you know, work, 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 work. People always ask me, what's the secret to being a successful writer? I'm like, work. (laughs) I know you don't want to hear it, but that's the truth. Work your ass off. Somebody tweeted the other day and she was like an aspiring author. And she was like, wait a minute, I have to write the book, edit the book, (laughs) build my own social profile, build a website, market the book. And, and, you know, find a publisher, find a distributor, design the book, all that. And in order, in order to be a successful writer. And my reply to her tweet was yes. And then some, because it's a lot of work. I mean, even if you're, even if you have a big five publisher publishing your book, it look, they definitely, it helps, but you're still doing a lot of the, the, the groundwork. And, um, and so anyway, for me personally, like to your, to you wanting to finish a novel, which is an amazing feat. For me, it's like, I just want to be able to write. That's it. I just want to be able to write because um, I have so many ideas and I want to keep getting them down on paper. And um, and for me, that's success. You know, that's 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 the best I can hope for. And everything on top of that is gravy. So, but I think for a lot of people, whatever drives you, whatever fulfills you, uh, if it's um, writing one short story every three months or every six months. And that short story is just something that you hone, you know, like a craftsman, like where you get home at night from work and you put the kids to bed and you're going to go spend an hour with that short story. I think that's amazing. I love it. It's just, um, it's just, you know, a lot of, uh, I think everyone has different goals and uh, I'm not a educated guy. I can never be a teacher. You know, I can never teach creative writing to students because I, I don't have, <laughs> you know, I never went to college. So, um, I'm kind of stuck with what I have. And, um, and that's just kind of this like raw, you know, uh, energy toward and drive to to write. And um, and I've always had it. I've had it since I was ten years old. I've never ever wanted to be anything except a writer. I've never never wanted to be anything since I was in third grade. I've always wanted to be a writer. So, you know, it's something that I I don't mind working toward because um, it's it's you know it's all I want to do. Well. On the basis of the one book I've read of yours, I think you'll have a long and storied career because, as I say, it's. I'm going to just be really blunt about it. It's one of the best horror books I've ever read. And I beseech everyone listening to go and read it because I just think it's wonderful. Um, yeah, and that's the, that's the tiny bit I can do to make your dreams continue coming true, Philip. Uh, no, I <laughs> Even though you it. broke my heart. I, yeah, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm hashtag sorry, not sorry. I, um, uh, yeah, but I appreciate that. It's very kind. So thank you for saying that. Well, and thank you for talking scared. There, I said it. One of the best horror novels I've ever read. 
That might be the first time I've said this in two years of making this show. Now, I'm not going to say too much more about it because, well, I think I've already given you a good idea of what this book means to me. But basically, if you like horror with heart, which I know loads of you do, and if you like character-driven stories, which, well, surely you do, and if you want to feel all the feelings, and I'll leave that up to you, (laughs) then you have to read Philip's novel. Never mind Stephen King. I'm telling you, this guy is the real deal. It's just beautiful, relaxed storytelling. Enough praise now, though, because you get the picture. And I've already managed to get The Guardian to write about Philip's book. That was an inadvertent thrill this morning when Alison Flood included not only A Child Alone with Strangers, but also my show in her roundup of the thrillers of recent months. But, but moving on, let me update you on what's going to happen between now and the end of the year. It's exciting, a little bit different, and... Well, it is more than a little bit self-indulgent. Basically, get ready for a lot of me. First of all, I'm taking a break from reading horror. Only a short break, but by my reckoning, I've got around five weeks when I can read anything I want. And I'm currently neck deep in some wholly enjoyable fantasy from Scott Lynch. If you're that way inclined, it's called The Lies of Lot Lamora, and it's the first in the Gentleman Bastard sequence. It's a rambunctious Dickensian fantasy heist about thieves in an imaginary version of Venice, and it's, well, it's just a lot of fun. I will get back to the darker stuff soon. I've got Grady Hendrix, CJ Tudor, Stephen Graham Jones. They've all got books that need reading before they come on the show in January and early Feb. But for a few weeks, no ghosts or demons or particularly cruel deaths in my reading. That doesn't go for my viewing, And next week's guest is none other than Craig Engler, general manager of Shudder, if you don't know. And if you don't know what Shudder is, it's Netflix for horror, and it's fantastic. Craig pulls back the curtain on how things work there, and we talk about the nastiest selection of films you can stream. How festive. After that, I've got an interview with two big names from horror, and friends of this show, you'll know them well. I won't tell you who. Just that it will be an interview with a real difference. And then we're into endgame territory when I'll be doing the usual state of the horror nation, looking back over the highs and lows of the genre in 2022 with some expert horror community siblings. That will take us into the new year and then, boom, we go again. And next year we'll hopefully see this show grow in marvellous ways. And I'll keep the obsequious thank yous for the last episode of the year because no one needs to hear that twice. But that's what's planned. Hopefully, this slight reprieve will save my sanity. I'm not going to lie. I got a bit bummed out this week. I felt like I wasn't getting the same buzz from making this show. I was having doubts. All of that stuff. The Thanksgiving week always has low downloads for me. It's like people don't want to hear about eviscerations and cruelty during their holidays. Madness. Isn't the same at Christmas. People love this stuff then. But yeah, that that dip coincided with me feeling a little bit meh and I got deflated. But I've turned a corner and I'm looking forward to what's next. So, if you're new to this show, or if you just haven't ever got in touch before, do. You can find me on TalkScaredPod at Twitter, Instagram or TikTok. And you can email me at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. Say hi, tell me what you've loved in 2022. What have you hated? But let's keep it positive. And what are you looking forward to next year? 
because who knows, I may be able to get some of those guests on the show and, and quiz them. Reviews are the lifeblood, and if you have the time to spare, please write one. They make my day. And if you really want to support what I do here, join Talking Scared Patreon. The link's in the show notes, or just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. Lots of people have this year already, and it really helps. Plus, it's fun making the extra bonus content, and without patrons, there'd be no need to. This week, I released an episode focused on the haunted forests of England, and next week, I've got an episode going live with more bonus stuff from recent guests. We call those the Whispers episodes. So that's the rundown on what's to come in the next few weeks, with a little space left for a few surprises. Until you hear from me again, have a good week, protect your sanity, be kind to all animals, but don't let the bed bugs bite. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>